Welcome to Supergirl's Attic. I'm Cycles. And I'm Vivi. And this is our Crisis on Infinite Earths, our one, two, and three analysis episode. In a more sort of classical form for us, we're going to walk through different aspects of the episode as opposed to sticking to one theme because it's such a big kind of event episode. Although there are quite relevant themes that we have to discuss. For instance, the concept of playing God, especially regarding power. Yeah, that was one of the kind of biggest issues in the crossover, at least as far as some of the Supergirl characters were concerned. You had the presence of the monitor and the anti-monitor raising these kind of bigger questions about how much power someone should hold over others, particularly over who gets to live or die, Mm. which was kind of neat because that theme surfaced last year in Elseworlds when we first saw the Book of Destiny and was relevant to a number of different issues that have cropped up in Supergirl and that are, again, very present this season. Yeah, one of the big issues that Kara as a character has sort of grappled with is regarding her mother, Alora, and the decisions that she made, both in relation to whether or not Krypton would survive, and then regarding Fort Ross and sentencing people to more than life in the Phantom Zone. Yeah, and kind of related to that, we also saw Kara under the influence of Red Kryptonite in Season 1 describing real power as being power over who lives and who dies, which again comes up with Rain in Season 3. And then to kind of tie it back into like Elseworlds and then Crisis, the storyline in Elseworlds with Deegan, who is like the creepy scientist guy who was on Earth 1, was directly parallel to the experiments that Lena was doing in season four with the Harnell and deciding who is allowed to have powers, who isn't, and how they should be used. And then we've seen it again this season in the bringing back of Myriad, which again was a technology that people were using to make decisions about how people could behave and essentially whether they're allowed to live their life or not. (laughs) And Lena again this season in this position of making decisions about who lives and who dies, again, with the fact that she has brought up repeatedly that she killed her brother. Hmm. And in the Crisis crossover, we find out that the Monitor apparently created the Anti-Monitor somehow. Yeah, and that will be neat to see unfold and to see how it's resolved because we also know that the Monitor, when he was testing Jean, set him up to find out that he had been partially responsible for creating Malefic in a way and (laughs) the rage that Malefic felt that caused him to side with the White Martians and basically condemn his own people to death. Yeah. And these themes of decisions that you make when you have power over others across all these different storylines has been connected to like Frankenstein, which Mm -hmm. we talked a lot about last season regarding Lena and then in the Elseworlds crossover with Deegan. He was called Frankenstein. Yeah. And related to that, there's been a really interesting kind of creation story subtext to everything that's going on, obviously, because you have the destruction and creation of different universes and the idea of this book of destiny that can like re create whole worlds or take them away or change people's realities. Yeah. And then you also have all these layers of conversation about parenthood and the dynamics between parents and children and kind of the obligations that you have to people who are dependent on you. And related to that, we know that the anti-monitor wants to create like a new world, but you then have the question of if he wipes out everyone in existence, what's the point of creating a world? There'll be nobody to live in it. Uh <laughs> 
And the other thing that was cool, or that at least got me thinking a lot, was the symbolism of some of the other characters that have been involved with Crisis. You have Harbinger, and that word means like to foreshadow the future. Mm. And when we use it in other contexts, it can be often associated with death in the sense of like the harbingers of death, like a raven or like, you know, the Grim Reaper, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But you also see it used a lot in association with renewal or like rebirth in some way. Mm -hmm. So that works really nicely for also her kind of dual role in the story. Yeah. And then there's Pariah. Pariah, for me, was kind of the place where the allusions to higher philosophy and maybe religious undertones stood out because of this idea that he expresses of how he is being forced to bear witness to sadness, to death, to all the bad things that are happening. Mm. And the reason I say that is because there's a quote that's embedded on the wall at the U.S. Holocaust Museum. And it says, for the dead and the living, we must bear witness. And it's written by Elie Wiesel, who was a Holocaust survivor and a very vocal proponent of testimony and saying that people needed to speak out about what happened mm. quite early on after World War II. And it's kind of an interesting thing to keep in mind, especially knowing that they intentionally did the EarthX crossover. We saw EarthX again in Crisis, mm. but also because of this other quote by Elie Wiesel in the 80s kind of as he was starting to collaborate and plan the museum that eventually opened in Washington, D.C. And he says that this is the Jewish belief that out of total darkness will come total light. My night won't end. And he's referencing his experience of living through the Holocaust. And yet other things are possible. Day, hope. Which was just really striking in terms of understanding where crisis is going on like a more philosophical level in a way, mm -hmm. because we have your favorite word, uh, <laughs> hope. hope. Kara, we find out, is the paragon of hope. Mm -hmm. And it's being played as kind of possibly the factor that can tip the balance so far in crisis, which I am very excited to see what happens for Kara in the second half, because we don't get too much evidence, unlike with some of the other heroes who are leads in the other shows, that there are duplicates of Kara in the way that we saw there were other wave riders, there were other berries, there were other green arrows. And also, the monitor acknowledges there was no need to test Kara. Kara's life has been test enough. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> and the other thing that Kara and Kara as a symbol of hope connects back to is also the symbol of hope coming from Greek mythology mm. and kind of classical philosophy in the sense that many of us know the story of Pandora's box where all the evils of the world are unleashed and then hope was still there for everybody. But Kara embodies hope not in the sense of passively sitting around like waiting for things to get better, but as an attitude and an outlook that motivates action. Mm -hmm. Not like I'm going to be sad, but I'm going to do something to try to make things better. Yeah. Kari even says in the second hour, like, I don't feel very hopeful right now, which is just silly because she's so obviously the paragon of hope. But also because even though she feels awful, she is still motivated to act and is seeking out options for ways to fix the things that have already happened. And also encouraging others to do so. Yes. And that puts her at odds with several of the characters, specifically. 
specifically the monitor. She does not like some of the decisions he is making. And that ties into this concept of like playing God and the power that you have. And I think it makes sense for Kara to be the one who is sort of, I guess, philosophically most at odds with the monitor right now. The other characters have sort of accepted that he knows what's going on and that we should just kind of trust his decisions Mm. because of things that have happened on their own shows. But for Kara, it just tracks in the sense that she most understands what is happening. Like the other characters are devastated by their personal losses, which makes sense, obviously. And Kara is upset about Alora, but she's particularly disturbed by the mass deaths in a way that the other characters maybe don't connect to. Except John. Except for Sean, of course. Yeah, but I get what you mean. Like, she understands on a much deeper level the expansiveness of the loss and the irreversibility of it. Yes. And she's also already had those disillusionments of questioning the people in charge who could have prevented such a catastrophic loss that she is now not in a position to just sit back and say, like, okay, (laughs) we'll listen to you. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that she has grappled with across the seasons, like, particularly early in season one, did my parents and the people on Krypton make the right choices? And now she's in the seat where it's her and the people around her who are making decisions which will determine whether or not everyone everywhere will live or die. So this is tied to her sort of origin story in a way that it isn't with other characters other than John, of course. And this is kind of demonstrated nicely in a quiet moment, which I appreciate in a crossover because they can be kind of big and action filled and busy. Busy, yeah. But there was a moment of car just standing over like this graphic of Argo's destruction and then sort of scrolling over and seeing Earth-38 being destroyed. And that is a nice way to demonstrate the connection between not only the fact that she has lost two worlds, essentially, but that what is happening right now is tied to what has happened to her before. Yeah. And this whole conflict between her and Monitor and a little bit with the other characters is fitting because we just talked about in our last podcast episode on trust, how Kara has an internal locus of control. She thinks that she can determine if things will be okay, outcomes generally, if the world will be saved. And then she kind of has this level of trust that ties into that, where if she does the right thing, she can't lose. And here, that viewpoint is being challenged by the other characters. So she thinks that they should be focused on saving more people and kind of getting a more perfect outcome or a least (laughs) terrible outcome and getting things that they've already lost back. She thinks that they can achieve that, where the other characters are like, we have to sustain what we have left. Yeah, well, and that's also related too to the difference between Kara and also Jean as aliens who are vastly more powerful than like every other character in the Arrowverse. Yeah. Their idea of what is possible is much more expansive. And so that's part of what also makes Kara kind of like a critical force in this collection. Yeah, because she's critical of the monitor who has even more power than she does. Does he though? (laughs) (laughs) But he can bring people back to life. But she doesn't like the way that the monitor is making decisions about who lives and who dies. For instance, in the beginning of the second hour, Kara talks about how Oliver shouldn't have sacrificed himself for her and Barry. She doesn't like that there was an exchange made, like a deal between Oliver and Monitor to replace her death with Oliver's. And then obviously she doesn't like when Lex shows up and the Monitor says that he saved his life and she points out how Lex is alive, but the Monitor can't bring back Oliver. So she's definitely critical. And then she didn't like how the Monitor allowed Lex to kill who knows how many Supermen in order to test the Brandon Routh Super 
Superman so that he will, I guess, become fully the paragon of truth. And then Kara, relating back to the fact that her Earth has been destroyed while the Monitor is making all of these decisions to like pluck out important people on these different Earths, she says, and what about those innocent lives on Earth 38? Did they not have destinies to fulfill? And that's kind of a nice sentiment to hear in a crossover where we have all these like collection of superpowered people to sort of ground it in saving individuals and like all of Earth 38 and beyond. And when I was looking back at some Jean scenes for our discussion on him later, I came across a quote that I think sums up Kara's views nicely. She said to Jean when Jean was planning to make an exchange of his life for Alex's life when the white Martian had kidnapped Alex and he was weary and like said he was tired of being the last, you know, the last son of Mars Mm. and how Kara also knows how heavy it is to survive, which it would be nice to have some bonding there in the next half of the crossover. Give it time. (laughs) Yes. They're the only show with more than one character still alive. (laughs) Yes. Even Lex counts, sort of. (laughs) They have three. (laughs) (laughs) But Kara said to Jean, we don't choose, we fight. So there's this kind of undercurrent of hopeful action and you don't like exchange one thing for another. You try to get both. There's the hope that we can have it all or there is another way. And I think that this concept ties nicely into Kara's motto, actually, which is relevant, obviously, in terms of hope, but it's hope, help, and compassion for all. That's what I'm going to do for Earth 38 is something she says in this episode. So the for all part is important to Kara that special powers don't mean that these people are more worthy of living than ordinary people. Well, and it's also kind of important to consider that we know she means that because she proved it over and over again last season when she was up against people who absolutely hated her and she would have been completely justified to not save or protect them in life-threatening situations. And I think that ties back into the idea that Kara didn't need any tests. Mm. Kara has such high standards for herself in that sense that she will do the right thing for everyone just because she thinks it's the right thing to do. And then also she is someone who's just come back swinging loss after loss. Like she had the issue of losing her home, her family and her culture shortly after coming to earth and finding a family and maybe even friends. Her friend Kenny dies. Mm. Jeremiah, they think, is dead. She believes that she sentences Monel to the same kind of fate that she went through of being trapped and isolated forever. She also deals with potentially losing or trying to regain the trust of the citizens and the people of the world that she defends because different things have taken that away from her. Mm. And after all of that, like she very definitely could have become very disillusioned in season four, could have given up and hasn't. And that's something that comes up again in the moment where she and Kate go to find Bruce because they see a person who did give up. Mm. Yeah, like obviously she has pretty good reasons to feel less hopeful than usual. She just lost all that was left of Krypton and her mother again. But she is still hopeful in these episodes and very much focused on saving everyone. And the fact that Kara has endured so much is brought up by Clark and that she would be justified in feeling less hopeful. And Kara gives one of her patented hope speeches which was on our bingo board of crisis events. <laughs> and poor Cal on his part, Clark, he's also not having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> you don't say. He's a little stressed out at the first yeah. portion of this crossover. I mean, well, he just sent his son away in a pod. And not only is that stressful on its own, 
for anybody. But it's also paralleling, obviously, what his parents did for him. And in the after show, actually, for Crisis, they mentioned that Clark and Lois's speech parallels the speech to little Cal from Jor-El in the Donner Superman film, the first one, obviously. <laughs> and how Clark says, we will always be with you, Jonathan. And then Lois says, we will never leave you even in the face of our deaths. And that's the line that Jor-El says. And then Clark says, I love you. And it was kind of interesting to see that line plucked of but we will never leave you even in the face of our deaths because the surrounding dialogue is a little bit more human sounding. Mm. So it was kind of a cool hybrid, which is cool to see with Clark as a cartoonian and a human culturally. And then that parallel of Clark and Jorel is interesting because of something else that Jorel says in his speech to his son before he sends him off in a pod. He's talking about how Cal will make Jorel's strength his own and carry him inside of him which is relevant in terms of what Kara says about Krypton. But then he also says the son becomes the father and the father the son. Which you really enjoy reminding us of. I do. But it's also very relevant here because Clark has literally sort of become his father in this moment in kind of a not a nice way. I mean, at least somebody got to live. <laughs> but also sort of in a nice way in that what Kara points out and how she reframes it from being about like this loss that has occurred to being about legacy and the love that both Clark and Jor-El have for their sons and how they did that for their sons and frames it as sort of a strength. And it was sort of fitting that Kara mentioned in her sort of pep talk to Clark how there are stories, celebrations, museum exhibits, because we've seen two museum exhibits this season. Mm. One for the Kryptonians, Supergirl and Superman, and the dinosaur fight oh, yeah. in the first episode. And then for Mars, which ended up being sort of hijacked by Malefic, and they had a battle there. So it feels like maybe they were trying to tie in some thematic elements there. And the fact that it was Krypton and Mars is fitting mm, in terms yeah. of Kara, Jean, and Clark. Well, because Kara and Jean have had this conversation before about legacies. But you also had that really good scene in the start of season two where Jean turns to Clark and acknowledges that he also has learned Kryptonian because they are both men of dead oh. planets and that they should support each other. That's nice, too. Yeah. And in season two, Jean also has a chat with Kara about how Kara's parents' legacy is not death and destruction, it's her. And she's kind of saying something very similar to Kal-El here in how Krypton's a spirit and how it's what their parents did for them and then what he did for Jonathan and how they've made their parents proud by fighting for what's right. And I thought that line about their parents being proud of them was interesting in terms of mm. something Kara said to Jean in season three, when he asked Kara what she thought her parents would think of who she became. And she said very surely that they would be proud of her. Oh, yeah. This is when Jean is on Mars and he realizes his father is alive, right? Mm -hmm. And his father calls him a coward because he thinks the whole thing is like an illusion. and that Yeah. And that ties into Jean's deep shame regarding surviving. And then also the fact that he sees it as like him running away from the planet, from mm. the white Martians. And Carr encourages Jean to sort of prove who he is to his father because she knows that he's dedicated his life to making sure what happened on Mars never happens anywhere else. And essentially that Jean is a man of honor. And I thought that this kind of circle of encouragement regarding legacies was really neat and how each of them, Cara, Jean, and Clark feel low at certain points, but then the other characters who have experienced something similar will pull them up 
and encourage them and recognize what they know to be true. So Kara is definitely that paragon of hope in that hope speech. However, for Kara, we obviously see that the fact that she is hopeful does not prevent her from having negative feelings, especially being angry. I really liked the way she expressed her anger to the monitor because it was aggressive, but it was very, very reminiscent to when she comes out of the coma in the Black Mercy episode in season one and feels like her world and her family has been ripped away from her. Mm. And she's like, who did this? And immediately takes <laughs> off and goes yeah. after Nan. Uh-huh. She seeks out somebody whose fault it is, essentially, which is an understandable reaction. And then she says to Harbinger when she pops up, did you do this? You know? Well, and it's also, she has the same kind of reaction. Her first instinct is to take action. Yeah. And she needs other people to get her to stop a minute mm-hmm. and kind of think. And fortunately, even in this very dire circumstance where her support network is literally and figuratively <laughs> gone, mm-hmm. she still gets that, which we will talk about more later. Yes, we will. But we also see her be kind of the one who is most focused on who their enemy is. Mm-hmm. She's the person who asks the monitor who they're protecting Earth from. And then when Lex pops up, she's immediately heat vision eyes. Yeah, and we haven't seen her do that since the time that guy almost killed Alex in season <laughs> mm. two, so... Uh, or and then we also saw it in season one when Max Lord threatened Eliza. Oh yeah, yeah. So that kind of protective anger. Yeah, and obviously Lex is not responsible for it this time yet. But yet, there's still time. <laughs> <laughs> but we see a little bit of that anger kind of being directed toward him in that moment, and then also some legitimate anger, obviously. Well, because part of Kara very likely thinks that it's his fault mm. that things with Lena went the way they did. Yeah. Which is, again, Kara maybe being hopeful because Alex already kind of told her it was going to go that way no matter what. Maybe we'll find out if that's true after crisis Mm, is over. Perhaps. But in terms of just feeling things other than hope, even in her hope speech, she talks about the doubts that she does have and feels deeply still. She talks about how she's been thinking similarly to Clark and that she can never do enough and how all of her mistakes outweigh all the good she's ever done. But then she says, but it's not true. It can't be. Which was nice to see, especially after kind of the way the season's been going and Cara feeling very guilty. It's nice to see her take a moment to recognize that she has done good. And then, so another thing I would like to address, we didn't get any specific questions about this, but it was a question I saw popping up in a lot of reactions mm-hmm. from people watching the episode, was why wasn't Kara more upset or like crying her eyes out or mentioning, you know, all the different losses that were happening. And so, and it's not just Kara, it's all of these characters because there's so much coming at them Mm -hmm. one thing after another. They don't have time to emotionally process all of that stuff. There's like that moment of initial kind of heart-wrenching devastation, but then it's like, oh my God, now I might die. I have to kind of shift my focus. And that's a very instinctual reaction. It's directly tied to the way the nervous system functions. And when your adrenaline is very high because you're in a dangerous circumstance, you don't think with those higher portions of your brain that control a lot of that, that thinking and emotional Hmm. processing and 
grief. You're really concentrating on like physical safety and the systems that will allow your body to relax long enough to think about that other stuff Mm -hmm. are being suppressed. So we might get some little bits and pieces here, but I actually think the way they've done the trauma of it for the characters who are still alive so far has been pretty realistic. And also we've seen Kara in situations like this before. She doesn't get super soppy emotional. She'll tear up a little bit Mm. Or she'll get angry, but she is not one to do like big displays of intense crying. Yeah, Kara is very action oriented, which is kind of why we see her after certain traumatic events, that emotion becomes channeled into anger, which is a driving emotion, which propels you forward into action. So we're seeing bits of Kara be upset, but she's not likely to sort of collapse and be in her own head about it at this stage. And then even afterwards, it would take her time. Yeah. Well, and that's also because she is so oriented on caring about others Mm. and that sense of compassion that she has. Like if you think even back to when Kenny died when she was a teenager, her first impulse upon seeing the grief of his parents was to be like, well, how can I make it better for you? Even though she was upset. Yeah. And there's that sense of responsibility probably at play here. Like, is Kara going to let herself collapse or is she going to save more lives or try to get the people she's lost back? Yeah. Well, and also too, it builds on what Clark says to her late in season three that he thinks even that she is stronger than him and that she deserves Mm -hmm. the title of protector of Earth. And that is reflected in this crossover as well because she's the only super who makes it to the end. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Poor paragon of truth. I mean, that's terrible in the sense of like, you know, the last child of Krypton. But on the other hand, it is reflective of the truth of that statement that Clark made to her. Yeah. And in terms of Kara as a paragon of hope, also relating to the other characters in the crossover, Kara also played a role in which she encouraged Kate Kane in this first half of the Crisis crossover. It was nice to see them interact so positively. Yes. Which was something that was also nice in the very first crossover with Barry and something I know a lot of people talked about how there is this movie Batman versus Superman out and there's a history of like contentiousness sometimes when some like A-list superheroes meet. But with Barry and Kara, it was a nice, friendly dynamic, a partnership. And then here we see a similarly positive dynamic between Kara and Kate. And then you can contrast this dynamic of Kara and Kate, and Kate's kind of a more like serious hero, as opposed to like Barry. With Barry and Oliver, they have more of a contentious relationship. Like if you recall in the last crossover, Elseworlds, how Barry shot Oliver in the back. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To like get even with him. Yeah, Yeah, that was in retaliation of Oliver doing the same thing to Barry initially to like teach him a lesson. Then also Oliver was resistant with Kara and suspicious of her in the invasion crossover. And Kara's like, like, what's your deal? I have all these powers. Can you let me help? And us, the audience, we're thinking the same thing. No, we can't <laughs> let you help because then the episode will be over in five minutes. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh-huh. But Oliver's like distrustful of her because she's like an unknown person. And then another relevant sort of rocky dynamic between superheroes is obviously Superman and Batman. Which is why this contrast here with Supergirl and Batwoman is pretty great. Yes. So those two figures have a historically turbulent dynamic and there's this <laughs> undercurrent of maybe respect, sometimes sort of friendship, but Batman's like too edgy to 
<laughs> to acknowledge it. Batman's too emo. He like doesn't want to admit that he <laughs> yes. has friends. And the Batman Superman dynamic that people may most easily recognize is from the Batman v Superman film that came out a couple years ago, directed by Zack Snyder. And in that film, Batman like loathes Superman because of destruction that occurred during a battle between Superman and then Kryptonians who were trying to take over the world. Oh, so kind of like Astra and all the extra Kryptonians who kept attacking National City in season one. But not. Yeah. And Batman was like an extreme Max Lord. Oh, awesome. <laughs> and the battle was in Metropolis and there was all this destruction and there were like clear 9-11 parallels that they were making mm. visually. So there's this obvious connection between Batman as somebody who hates this alien for this destruction with the xenophobia toward Muslim people. So that's obviously a very fear and hate driven dynamic. But it's relevant because in the second hour of the Crisis crossover, the older Bruce Wayne that Kate Kane and Kara visit quotes a line from Zack Snyder's Batman. They taught me, being his parents, that the world only makes sense if you force it to. And then this isn't a quote from the movie, but the crisis Batman mentions like strange visitor from another planet. And that kind of emphasizes that sort of xenophobic undercurrent with what he's saying. And so we see that this Bruce Wayne is quite obviously not a paragon of courage. And there's that hate created from fear, kind of similar to Lockwood, the season four theme. Yeah. Yeah. That drives a pretty big wedge between Batman and Superman. And we see how different the Kara and Kate dynamic is because Kate chooses to trust Kara and makes that courageous decision. Yeah, I really liked the way they built on Kara and Kate's very brief dynamic from the crossover last season mm -hmm. in Elseworlds and gave it a little bit more depth here. Because you have Kara, as we kind of already said, completely at odds with all of the other superheroes because they're thinking like, okay, we need to like retreat, regroup, protect what's left. And she's like, no, we're going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. And she wants to do it immediately because that's the speed at which she runs. <laughs> but it was interesting because this was like that mode was set up like right in the beginning of the first first hour yeah. when the guy is yelling about how the world is going to end. Oh, yeah. And the cameo by Will Wheaton. Yes. Yeah. And he says, not even Supergirl will save you. And she's like, guess Supergirl was able to save you when she stops the fireball from hitting him. So there's this idea like, I can fix everything. You doubt me? I mean, it's usually true. <laughs> Yeah. But the other issue is that Kara feels like she has to do it because she also recognizes that she's the person in the position to be capable of doing it. Mm -hmm. And so she's like, well, if I don't act, then I'm not doing enough. Yeah. And Kara generally feels like responsible for fixing things everywhere all the time. She sees someone who needs help and she helps them, as she said before. But this was something we saw come up a lot in the last Supergirl episode regarding Lena and how she mentions fixing things, specifically that term with Lena twice in the episode. And then in this crossover, she says, I have to find a way to fix this. And then toward the very end, when Paragon of Truth Clark is dying in Kara's arms, he says, please fix it. So, Well, partly because she's holding him, but also like, really, of all of them, 
who else is going to do it? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a really good point. Kara's ready to dive in and fix things in typical Kara fashion. And as we saw a lot, especially in the earlier seasons, Kara, when she's in that mode and not taking a moment to kind of maybe think through the consequences or recognize her own importance as a symbol as well as a person who can act, she will sometimes make maybe not the best or safest or healthiest choices for herself. And we have Kate approach her in a really lovely way and say all of that in a very honest and almost like a vulnerable kind of way too. Yeah. Speaking of courage. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and she points out, you know, not only is it going to endanger the universe that they're all trying to save because they need Kara to do it, but that even if Kara succeeds and saves everyone, it could hurt her irreversibly and that that would be equally bad. Yeah. And it was nice to see this dynamic and how Kate clearly cares about Kara and how that care for her has brought out her courage. And that's kind of the way that she is tested as a paragon of courage. You know, the evil Bruce Wayne tells Kate that the Kate he knew didn't trust anyone. So there's a clear contrast here where we see Kate specifically trust Kara and like make decisions based around it. Like she takes off her masks because Kara is like, I would trust these people with my life. Mm. And, you know, revealing her identity to everyone is kind of a big deal, as we know on Supergirl. Yeah, especially since they all live on her Earth. Uh Like, Kara can just peace out and go home, and (laughs) it doesn't matter that they know who she is. Mm -hmm. And Kate, for her part, is also struggling in her show with the fact that she has to keep the seeker from people. So, And then Kate also... I mean, she respects Kara immensely. That's a large part of why her loyalty falls very quickly to where it does. Yeah. And then she also is courageous in how she says that Bruce is going to have to kill her first if he wants to get to Kara to hurt her. And then importantly, she is willing to actually fight Kara so that Kara isn't driven insane. You liked the observation I made while watching that where I said it reminded me of the scene in Harry Potter where Mm -hmm. Dumbledore gives Neville the points for recognizing that sometimes it's more brave to have to stand up to someone you consider a friend than an enemy. Mm Mm-hmm. A very Neville-like moment. I never thought I'd compare that woman to... (laughs) Kate Kane is Neville Longbottom. Hey, (laughs) Neville is the one who ends up pulling the sword out of the hat at the last minute and killing the Horcrux. And there are seven paragons like the Horcruxes. (gasps) (laughs) Well, speaking of Harry Potter quotes, the Sorcerer's Stone... Mm -hmm. quote came to mind when Dumbledore's like, only someone who wanted the stone but didn't want to use it would be able to get it. And Kara lets Kate keep kryptonite because Kate courageously is willing to give up that kind of edge that she would have over Kara. And then you compare that to Batman and Superman and how Batman is constantly in these battles with Superman and using kryptonite against him. But they're friends. It's fine. (laughs) But there's a contrast there, obviously, with the Bruce Wayne who was so afraid of him that he killed him. Yeah. And so much like how you have this very deliberate contrast between Kate and the version of Bruce Wayne that we meet, this interaction of Kara and Kate also, again, reiterates the difference between Kara and Clark and how Kara and that family concept of El Mayara, everyone is stronger together, is very different than Clark Kent, American American (laughs) farm boy, who's very independent and is used to going in alone, doing things himself, and has never been raised to think about problem solving in another way. Mm. 
And that's ultimately what leads this to be a much more harmonious relationship in a lot of respects. And then they both echo each other's values at the end, which was nicely done just on a character level for rounding out the growth of their friendship and Kate pointing out like Bruce lost hope in people. And I won't because I saw how I was able to affect you. And Kara then says, you know, I will trust you with this thing that could hurt me because I'm willing to be brave enough to trust you with it. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I liked about the Kara and Kate stuff was that the dynamic had this really interesting quality to it that was reminiscent of a lot of maybe like earlier Kara and Alex stuff. Mm -hmm. And also it filled a space where we've had Kara and Alex moments in the two previous crossovers. So I like that they gave Kara someone to play off of who had kind of that similar, very practical energy (laughs) and was a little bit more grounded and skeptical and like, hey, maybe we should think a little. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It was just extra nice because we as the audience can recognize that Kara, much more so than everybody else, has got like a whole lot of baggage bouncing around inside, even if she's trying to put it out of her head. Mm -hmm. And so giving her this moment where somebody else is making an emotional connection and directly expressing concern for her in order to give her an out to protect herself without feeling guilty for it was like really nicely done. Yeah, it was indeed. Ruby Rose, who plays Kate, said in like a behind the scenes video, they're like best friends. I really like it. And I just thought that was cute. (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yep. (laughs) It's kind of fast, but it was pretty... Hello. It's not any faster than when Kara and Sam randomly became (laughs) friends. I accept it. I feel like it's somehow more organic because one, they're (laughs) interacting with each other a lot. And two, poor Kate on her show does not have a lot of friends. (laughs) She has her one friend she mentioned. So I believe that they're best friends in a way. (laughs) Our third paragon we're going to discuss in this episode. Jean is the paragon of honor, and I'm quite pleased about this. The paragon of honor makes sense for Jean. Obviously, he just seems like an honorable dude. But (laughs) there are seeds of this concept that have been sown across the seasons. In season one, an episode I like to reference a lot with regard to Jean's character and then also Jean's dynamics with Kara and Alex, episode 11 of season one, Strange Visitor from Another Planet. In that episode, which I referenced earlier, a white Martian is coming after Jean. And this is the first time that we're seeing the white Martians in the series. And Jean talks to Alex a little bit about the genocide that occurred on Mars. And he described the white Martians and how the green Martians had known war before, but not the way that the white Martians were doing it. There was no honor in how they fought, is something he emphasized. And, you know, Alex figures out that this is something important, honor to Jean, and tries to convince him by playing upon that value. She says, I know you believe in honor. There's no honor in what you're about to do with regard to wanting to kill the White Martian. And then later on in the episode, Kara also appeals to his sense of honor when Jean says that he's going to sacrifice his life for Alex's, as opposed to, you know, Kara's trademark of like finding another way, like a way to see both of them. And she relates Allura to Jean and talks about how Allura must have felt responsible for what happened on Krypton and how dying must have seemed like the honorable Mm, decision. Yeah. And then she says, but dying is a lot easier 
than getting back up when the world's ended. And for Jean, you know, he struggles with survivor's guilt Mm. the most of the characters. Yeah, in a different way than Kara does. Yeah. And he says in the same episode, I escaped, I survived to my great shame. So he thinks the fact that he survived is not honorable. And Kara reframes it so that moving forward and helping people and contributing to the world in a positive way is the more honorable thing than dying in a symbolic gesture. And that's something that Jean struggles with throughout the series, the shame of surviving and then making up for it in his mind by helping other people. In season four, he has this huge moral struggle of like how to behave honorably and does he abide by his father's worldview and the decisions that he would make or does he behave the way he was before and what he ends up doing is sort of a meshing of those two worldviews and then growing from that. And at the end of the season, he mentions this idea of how during the battle for his home planet, he ran and millions died, but he will not make that same mistake again. So by the end of season four, Jean's in a place where he feels that he is living pretty honorably and living by his values. But then in season five... Plot twist. (laughs) Plot twist. The monitor digs up this sort of deep shame within Jean's unconscious that he has to deal with in order to become the paragon of honor. The way Jean assesses his decision to wipe everyone's minds of Malefic is, I destroyed my honor when I wiped you from our memories. So then finding that balance again and making up for it with Malefic put him in a place to be paragon of honor that he is. And another aspect of the concept of honor that is relevant for Jean is the idea of honoring others. Like we just mentioned in season four, Jean was struggling with morality with relation to his father. And he said, all I've wanted to do since my father died is honor him, live by Mm -hmm. his example. And in season three, we also see him try to honor Kara when she leaves. He says, there's only one Supergirl, but we will all do our best to channel your spirit in your honor. And we see him in that episode behave as Supergirl would and giving kind of a hope speech to someone. So Jean is very concerned with honoring loved ones and then also obviously honoring his people. So both of those aspects like honoring others and then behaving in a way that is honorable are integral to Jean's character. So this title that he has received makes a lot of sense. And speaking of Jean and acting honorably and trying to make sure that what happened to him doesn't happen to anyone else, Jean in this crossover helped people escape death on Earth in a way that he wasn't able to with Mars in gathering all of the ships and communicating with the aliens of National City, which was neat because in season four, he vowed to become a man of the people. And we saw him kind of make those connections. And it's come in handy a couple times. And especially here, we see it be pretty vital to their plan to save the people of Earth-38. And then it was also nice to see him kind of lead the rescue squad of heroes off screen, as was mentioned in hour two of the crossover, when he said, let's get a rescue team together, save who we can across the multiverse. And generally, it was nice to see the way that the aliens of Supergirl played a role in this crisis related to Earth-38's destruction. Mm. Nia also, she was set up as like a symbolic bridge between humans and aliens in season four. And then here we see her guiding people via like this announcement on a giant screen in a way that kind of harkens back to 
her own sort of hope speech that she gave. And it sort of cements the fact that she is a bridge between humans and aliens with this sort of second appearance of that quality. And there was this line that was simultaneously like odd. (laughs) <laughs> and then on the other hand, neat when Jean initially brought up the idea of enlisting the aliens to help get everyone off Earth 38. And then Brainy asked him if he thought that they would actually help after how the government treated them last year, which kind of frames it in a way that's like one year of suffering, <laughs> as opposed to the fact that xenophobia still exists. <laughs> yeah. To be fair, it was a particularly rough year in terms of the government and the official in place and there was like a terrorist group who was in power within the government although cadmus existed before it was just secret but it was also cool to see sort of more symbolically in how the people who came to earth 38 as refugees are now helping Mm, yeah the people of earth 38 escape their home it's like when lily and luther tried to put all the aliens on a spaceship and get rid of them and now they're useful Useful. I mean, that was the word she used to describe Kara. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's like, see? <laughs> see? We are good parts of society. We're all on the same level now. But then it's also kind of like, if you think about it from Kara's point of view, maybe, she was mm-hmm. welcomed into a family. And Nia probably feels the same way. And how things are going to feel awful for the people of Earth-38 when they have to leave their homes. But the aliens are playing this role of like, we've been here before. So they have empathy? Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a weird mixture of feelings. <laughs> yeah. In several senses. Which I'm, I'm almost kind of hoping that the crisis reset will give us a little bit more follow-up on like, why was xenophobia only a problem for like a year? <laughs> <laughs> but we have some other more sort of miscellaneous thoughts about the first three hours of crisis. Kelly Olsen has a guardian shield. I like how it's resized to be proportionate to her (laughs) instead of James. That's a good point. Yeah. She looks great with it. And (laughs) I would not be opposed to seeing it a lot. (laughs) That was a very cute little moment. Yeah. It was a cool visual moment in terms of like crossover comic-y moments too. Yes. Kelly with the guardian shield. We also saw Alex in the first hour trying to get through to Lena, which is relevant to our Supergirl storyline that's happening. A heartfelt speech did not work out for Alex either. So I know. She tried the Kara method. She did. She gave it a good shot. And I bet Kara would appreciate it. Well, I said to you, it felt a lot like the way Kara has it in her head that like she needs to say all the things that are important before like people die. Mm, yeah, that's a good point. And it was kind of Alex like trying to clear the air and Lena was like, nope. No, I'm still <laughs> going to be mad about this until our graves. Other thing that I absolutely loved was when we finally get Black Lightning introduced into the full Arrowverse and he agrees to kind of contain all the energy from the treadmill thing Mm. to keep himself focused even though it's hurting him and it's difficult he starts reciting the creed that he teaches his students his alter ego he's a teacher in order to motivate them to look past maybe some of the very difficult circumstances in their own lives and like take control over themselves and their decisions Mm. that as someone who watched black lightning i just really liked that it was really nice it's one of those little moments that i will talk a little bit more about this later but was more in touch with the character and more based in real emotion than perhaps past crossovers have been yeah and related to that the moment of barry and jefferson talking about their own kind of like parent child relationship thoughts and 
being emotionally open with each other was also really great because, you know, Jefferson's thought as soon as he gets pulled in is, oh my God, what happened to my wife and my daughters? And we didn't see Joe in this episode at all, who is Barry's father figure. And, you know, he's gone now. So that was a really kind of cool dynamic to see. Kind of like how the dynamic of Kate and Kara was kind of familiar for Kara. This was a familiar kind of thing for Barry. Mm, Yeah, true. In terms of our paragons, (laughs) Barry as the paragon of love made me laugh because... in terms of like crossovers and the flash really believes in the power of love like the show <laughs> philosophically yes it sure does <laughs> car had a line in the flash episode of the elseworlds crossover no love is the most unselfish thing in the world on any world which was slightly out of character for her because she has had to choose a greater good over personal love and will always make that decision and it was just funny to have the flash writers paragons of love say that love is unselfish on any world including supergirl is fitting in terms of kind of seeing the threads of the production of these crossovers and the different kinds of writers on the different shows and the different moral foundations that they all have yeah we're not quite clear yet on how like sarah's gonna fit into the picture other than because presumably that they're in this like void outside of space and time and she's from legends which does a lot of stuff with time and time travel so she's probably going to be some sort of linchpin in terms of like getting things back to normal and the last episode is a legends episode and we've seen in the first three episodes they have kind of had important moments for instance with the supergirl episodes there were lots of supergirl moments flash there were big flash moments Batwoman, there were important moments for Kate. So there will probably be something important for Sarah as kind of the lead of that show in the final hour. Yeah, I'm also curious to see more about our paragon of humanity and what that brings to the table. Mm-hmm. It's kind of similar to how in Supergirl, they've always been very adamant about like Alex not having powers because of the symbolism of like someone without powers can still be a hero. Mm-hmm. Um, so that should be cool. And we haven't gotten a lot yet on what Jean is going to do. Yeah, we know something's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> His powers are going to be important for some reason. And then we'll see how Lex messes around with everything. Yeah. And then last thing I want to bring up because the producers of this crossover deserve credit where it is due for making improvements. The gender parity of the lead characters and the racial and ethnic diversity of the leading heroes is vastly better than it has been in the past two big crossovers. Mm. The racial and ethnic diversity especially was a huge failing in last year's crossover. It was an issue in most of the previous ones, but it seems like there was a much more conscious effort put into rectifying that problem this year. Mm -hmm. Um, So like specifically with gender, this really stood out to me as I watched the crossover and I I actually watched all three episodes in a row. And so I noticed it a lot more as a pattern. Pretty much all the scenes involving female characters made sure that there were at least two women Mm. all of the time to be seen partners with each other. And all of them were used for really critical plot and character content Mm. throughout all three episodes of the first half. Like you had the scene of Alex and Lena putting together the transmat portal to get people off 38. And then they plus Nia and Kelly basically led the evacuation. Yeah. That we saw. You had Kara and Kate together a lot. You had Iris with Lois, which was like a nice like reporter girl (laughs) bonding moment. And then you had Sarah with Mia as kind of like this bridge between parts of Oliver's life because she had started out on Arrow and them kind of Mm. trying to piece together their understandings of who Oliver is and whether Mia, much like Kara, is making some impulsive decisions that Mm. aren't 
the best. Yeah. And then unfortunately, poor Killer Frost. <laughs> she was the only one who didn't get like a good moment like that. Well, she turned from Killer Frost into Caitlyn. So technically, it's two characters. <laughs> <laughs> she got a scene as two characters with herself. Um, Be your own hero. <laughs> I mean, she does do that, I guess. But like in terms of the, the diversity more broadly, we talked about this in the podcast for Elseworlds because when you bring in just the leads, even if the full cast of each show is fairly diverse, hmm. it isn't when you just take like the top one, two characters from each show. Yeah. And if you look at the team of Paragons, like they made sure to think about that a little bit more. You have a pretty even gender balance. There's multiple characters of color. There's multiple queer characters. Mm-hmm. That's not something Marvel can say. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I mean, just just think about the sheer number of characters representing different minority groups. Like there were at least five LGBTQ heroes in the crossover so far, which yeah. is a lot considering, you know, where are they elsewhere in big media like that? And you also have the intentional decision to make the monitor and the anti-monitor characters played by an actor of color. There was also a better just integration overall of the teams from each show in order to showcase the spectrum of characters. Like Cisco got scenes, Diggle got some really pivotal moments. Kelly got her cool, like, guardian hero moment. And then also they deliberately budgeted the time and made the schedule work out to get Black Lightning in there and actually fuse that universe in as well. Yeah. I'm, like, still still hoping someday (laughs) for, like, a more nuanced crossover there. Yeah, and it's been said how they had considered just having him come in for, like, a cameo, but then wanted to make it matter more (laughs) for the character. And I think their team especially were adamant about that, the Black Lightning team. Which I can totally understand. Like, (laughs) that's one of the things I really like about that show. It is unapologetic in its representation of the culture that it represents. Mm, And so the way that they brought Jefferson in, I really, really liked. And I hope we get the chance to bring the whole Pierce family at some point. I think we might have some Supergirl fans in there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the the girls who play Thunder and Lightning have both said, like, if there was one Arrowverse show they'd want to cross over with, it is Supergirl. Yes. Which I think tonally, it's like the closest Mm -hmm. fit in the sense that it is the one that lives in the world of reality, like on a social (laughs) and a cultural level more so than the others. Uh They could find a way to make it work. Yeah. Together, they will destroy xenophobia. (laughs) (laughs) They will single-handedly end discrimination against all minorities. (laughs) The other thing which you alluded to earlier on in the podcast is that I think the storytelling this year has been a little bit more focused on themes that like a whole general audience will find resonant and the emotional roots are there Mm -hmm. in a way that maybe they haven't been, like especially in Earth X, which should have had some really strong emotional grounding and then didn't. Yeah. Like it's not about romance for once. Like (laughs) like, there's just Barry and Iris and he's the paragon of love. So like, what are you going to do? Well, yeah, but even that, it wasn't like about that. Mm -hmm. Like Iris was doing other stuff. Barry was doing other stuff. They had like a goodbye moment, but they had a moment where it was like, we love each other 
together, but you still got to do the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was also really, really critical in Iris being the one who she gave a hope speech, like, you know, <laughs> um, to get Ryan Choi to join them. And so it ended up being relevant for reasons that weren't just about like, oh, we're going to go have our wedding. Um, <laughs> that Oliver's going to crash with his own wedding. <laughs> it's fine. Um, and, and then, you know, next crossover, he dies, like, cause and effect. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get married. You will get pregnant and die. <laughs> and die. <laughs> but kind of re related to the marriage thing, the focus has really been on bonds between parents and children, mm -hmm. which is very interesting because that's not something that's ever really been on the radar before. I mean, it, we see it a lot in Supergirl, but like it's never been the focus of a crossover. Yeah. Um, which is funny because like, Super superhero origin stories are like so rooted in, in like childhood trauma, yeah, parental <laughs> dynamics, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The other thing, though, I'm really curious to see if siblings will come up as a motif mm -hmm. like late in the game, specifically because the monitor chose to test Jean via his relationship to his brother. Mm. Plus, you have Lex still out to kind of like find a way to get revenge on Lena. You have Kara and Alex, whose relationship has been very prominent in the previous crossovers to the point of showing that it like it will endure even if they don't like know each other. And it was raised in the Batwoman episode of this half. Kate has a lot of sibling stuff that she's working through, <laughs> like to, to put it mildly. Yeah. Well, and like technically, you also have like Sarah and Laurel Lance, but like we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And we don't know enough about Ryan to know if he's got any secret like sibling things secret in there siblings barry doesn't have a sibling yet <laughs> yet <laughs> go back in time <laughs> they'll go back and then he will um, that would be funny if like one of the major changes of the flash is that barry now has a sibling <laughs> well that was like how i was looking up the backgrounds on other characters and it was like barry messes with time and diggle's daughter is now a son and i was like <laughs> okay i roll with it i guess <laughs> but that would be interesting to see the first like section be parental themes and then the second sibling themes them being like what are the two relationship dynamics that are most important for our characters <laughs> well the other thing there too is like you have in like all the monotheistic religions sibling conflict is one of the very early stories mm, yeah and we don't know what the connection is between the monitor and the anti-monitor like i said it's very curious that the monitor chose to test Jean through this relationship with his brother. Yeah. And then we find out that he feels like he created the anti-monitor or he says that he did and we don't know how. Maybe Jean's mind powers will come in handy with relation to the anti-monitor. Hmm, maybe. Mm. In any case, narratively, this was, I think, I mean, they've had to put the most thought into, but like <laughs> you can tell. Uh, <laughs> yes. So looking forward to seeing how they conclude it. And props also for trying to accomplish longer than a standard movie on a TV budget. Yeah. So that wraps up our Crisis on Infinite Earths, hours one, two, and three analysis. We'll be doing two podcast episodes during the hiatus until the second half of Crisis on Infinite Earths. And then also, just to let everybody know, we exceeded our goal for the fundraiser that we set up for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. Mm -hmm. We ended up raising over $1,300. So thank you so much to everyone who participated. And yep. the fundraiser is still live if you still want to donate. Mm -hmm. So the link is still pinned to our Twitter if you want to go kick in a few more dollars. 
And as always, you can go to our Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram at Supergirl's Attic if you have questions or comments about the episodes of our podcast or of Supergirl or of Crisis. And thanks for listening. 